Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hey y'all, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind you that the doors are officially open for the Birth Lounge. If you have been looking for non-judgmental childbirth education that is truly going to be transparent in the risk and the benefits and the pros and the cons, we're going to talk freely about your alternatives and the options that you have. We're also going to discuss all of the twists and the turns that can pop up in labor, the things that you most commonly run into in birth that can make your birth take a turn that you didn't want or weren't expecting. Plus, how do you actually handle and cope with those situations? What do you do about inductions, both medically needed inductions and elective inductions? How do you know if you're safe to continue to be pregnant? What are your options if it is best to be induced? We also talk about how to have an empowered C-section if your birth turns that way or you choose a scheduled C-section. This childbirth education course is not designed to persuade you one way or the other. It's actually designed to lay out all of your options in your toolbox and then help you understand when each tool is best appropriate for your labor because you're not going to know what pops up into your labor until you're in your labor. But when you get in that situation, you will know, ooh, I learned this in the birth lounge and I can use this. Ooh, I remember that he, he taught me that this is a great question to ask here and will help me understand my options. So I'm not going to keep you much longer, but if you're interested in that and you want to truly have a birth experience that you love, you feel supported and empowered throughout, one that, like I say, doesn't have any goals with the childbirth education except to keep you in that driver's seat of your birth experience, then check out thebirthlounge.com. Doors are only open for a few more days, so don't miss out. Okay, on to the episode. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. Y'all, today we are talking about baby reflux, which is something that pops in my email, my inbox, my text messages, my voicemails, my one-to-one consults, our prenatals with our one-to-one clients in the Birth Lounge, all over the place, constantly. People want to know how can they help their babies with reflux. I also get in really another common question. Hmm. Was that a really another common question? Got it. 
Another question that I get really often is, how do I know if my baby has reflux or if their spit up is normal? And what about colic or witching hour? All of these things seem to be connected, but there doesn't seem to be really great help out there. It's kind of hit or miss whether your pediatrician has specific training in this and, and, and can you know help step you through this. It's hit or miss whether the IBCLC that you hire has knowledge in this as well. And sometimes IBCLC support is so sparse in your area that you have to wait weeks or months to see someone. So what are you to do in the meantime? I am so excited to sit down with Anya from the Baby Reflux Lady on Instagram to talk about this challenging and overwhelming time of navigating your baby's gastric development during the first few weeks and months of their life. Anya is the mom of two girls who, between them, had the diagnoses of colic, reflux, silent reflux, CMPA, and multiple other intolerances and allergies. She struggled with postnatal depression for years after having her babies, which left her feeling lost and alone. During that time, her instinct was to always listen to her babies, so she struggled to accept the explanations that healthcare professionals offered. She knew that her daughters were in pain and that there had to be a reason. With a background in mechanical engineering, she then retrained in 2012 in traditional Chinese medicine. Anya believed that there was one question which would unlock the answers for her children. And that is still the same question that she supports her clients with around the world. And that is... What is causing your baby's distress? Anya believes that no matter what is going on with your baby, it all comes back to this question. Without further ado, Anya, welcome to the show. Hey, Hee, thank you so much for having me here. It's so I'm so excited to talk about this topic today. I am very excited to have you. I think this is a topic that a lot of people are going to feel like it has impacted them in some way. Um, and if you are someone who hasn't been impacted by baby reflux, really, I'm glad for you. We love that for you. But for the people who have been impacted, I think we all kind of have this cringe of like, oh, it's such a struggle. And it can be really, really hard. It's hard, you know, especially in the U.S. to find accurate information. And then it's always hit or miss whether your pediatrician is, you know, kind of knowledgeable about baby reflux and also what is their approach? Do they have a flexible approach or do they turn immediately to pharmacological uh, kind of resolution? So I think parents are eager for a conversation about reflux and I'm really excited to dive into this with you. So can we start a little bit uh, just what is reflux and how do we tell reflux from normal regular baby spit up because spit up is a normal baby thing oh I love that question he because I'm going to question whether spit up is a normal thing or not so let's get back yeah. to basic questions reflux is regurgitation that's all it is it is the movement of stuff from a baby's tummy or from anybody's tummy into the esophagus Sometimes it comes into the esophagus, sometimes it comes up as far as the mouth, sometimes it goes beyond the mouth as like vomit, some babies even projectile vomit. It's all reflux. And mm -hmm. for people listening, if they think their baby has silent reflux or they've been given a diagnosis of silent reflux, the only difference between reflux and silent reflux is that silent reflux only comes into the throat. So we don't 
see it. It's not about hearing it. It's just that we don't see it. Everything else about it is the same. It is the movement of stomach contents into the esophagus or the food pipe for baby. And lots and lots and lots of children are given a diagnosis of colic early on, or even uh, pediatricians use the phrase purple crying to explain unexplicable crying. It is my belief that every single baby is crying as a form of communication. Yes. And then it's about figuring out, well, what are they trying to say? Some of them are saying, I need a hug. Some are saying, mom, where are you gone? Some are saying, I'm hungry. Some are saying something hurts. And this is, it's just one piece of the puzzle. Lots of babies have ongoing digestive discomfort. So they have no regurgitation whatsoever. However, because everything else appears physiologically normal. So they're gaining weight, they're sleeping fairly okay. They're still feeding hit and miss, but it's okay. So there's no external, obviously something wrong with them from a medical point of view, but they get diagnosed as having reflux because the medical community are taught that reflux is normal. And it's, it's really important to know that our pediatricians and doctors are taught that something is normal. Therefore, that is their belief. Just because we want to take a different look at it doesn't mean that we're anyways wrong. Yeah. You know, it's okay to look for further answers and for explanations. And what I encourage every parent to do is, and I think this aligns with your work as well, he, he is to, you know, interview every single person you meet, be it a public health nurse or a pediatrician or a midwife or a lactation consultant or me or an osteopath or a chiropractor interview everybody and go "Mm, I think that bit fits for my baby but that bit doesn't and bring together your own village of help to be really specific for your child because every single human is different yeah you touched on um looking into other options and it just like prompted me like dropped into my head to say if your gut instinct as as your baby's parent is pushing you to look into other options, you should listen to your intuition. Do you know how many people I tell on a daily basis, you know your baby better than anybody on earth. And you may feel like you don't really know this tiny human. And that may be true. You may not know them deeply. They may only be five days old, but you know them deeper than anybody else on earth for those five days that they are, for those 14 days, for that month, for those two months, for their six months. Like you will never not be the expert in your child. Um, Look into those gut feelings. Okay. And I love the way that you say put together, we call it in the, in the like tranquility by he, he community, uh, your own equation. So take what fits for you, line them up in your toolbox and say, here's my perfect equation. And then if one of your pieces of your equation breaks or isn't available or becomes not an option, have alternatives for those. Um, so I also love the, to, guide parents to have almost a um, hierarchy of options that they want to look at. This is my first choice. And if this one doesn't work, then I'd be most comfortable moving to this. And then I'd be most comfortable moving to this, Um, you know, and you know, the different pivots. Well, if this happens, then we might have to skip that one because, you know, it's not appropriate anymore. Um, Yeah. Gosh, I really love it. Okay. So if, um, 
Well, hang on. Before we move into that, let's talk about normal spit-up. So let me share my belief about spit-up. So my master's is in human development and family studies. So I look at anatomy a lot. And your baby is not born with that esophageal flap. And so a lot of times we will see babies do um, what a lot of people refer to as happy spitting, but it's just like normal, regular spitting. Your baby should not be experiencing weight loss with this um, discomfort. It should literally just be like, oh, they spit up and that's that. Um, it is, you know, a nonchalant thing. Um, I believe that that is normal. Anything, you know, kind of outside of that would strike me as abnormal, but not necessarily reflux. So I have these three levels of, I think, intensity or severity that I look at spit up. How do you approach spit up in terms of that? Okay. So, and you're, so what I will say is it's not always that it requires intervention or action. It's really about understanding it first. So Every human on earth, we have, uh, we have the lower esophageal valve, which because it's a muscle, it's a ring of muscle, mm-hmm. muscle tissue in your entire child's body is not developed and not strong at birth. Okay, so this is where the, the weakness in the lower esophageal valve is often blamed for reflux. Well, in my view, if, if this was true, then every single child born would have reflux because every single child has this inherent weakness. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth is the stomach is like, a, an el- it is an elasticated bag of muscle. It's got three layers of muscle. And for the purpose of this, imagine it only opens at the top, okay? It's like a balloon because the, the pyloric valve at the bottom is clamped shut until the stomach and, and the center in the, in the stomach go, ah, this milk, this food is ready for the next stage of digestion and absorption. So. We've got this balloon, right? And we half fill it with milk. And then the stomach does its mechanical churning. So the bottom of it squeezes and the top of it relaxes and stretches. And then the top of it squeezes and the bottom of it relaxes and stretches in order to physically mix the contents with stomach juices for digestion. So if it's a balloon, I believe, and you can confirm, hey, would you be happy if I said half full balloon? Do you want to squeeze it? But a half full balloon will expand in parts to keep the milk within it. It's when we overfill the stomach or we overfill that balloon to its maximum capacity and then we try to squeeze it, that's when we get this overflow. Got it. Okay. So, for my belief that every child who has spit up might have drank a little bit more than their stomach can cope with at that time, they might have excess air in there that is also stretching the stomach along with whatever milk they're drinking. Um, And so this is where we look at, why is that spit up happening? And very often we will see babies who spit up now and again, it might be after an intense period of crying when they were upset for some reason. And so in when a baby cries, they go, (gasps) and in that gasp, they fill their stomach as well as their lungs because they're just drawing in as much air as they can. And so we're looking for these sources of possible air intake that then stretch the stomach beyond its capacity that when it goes to churn, it's giving that sort of regurgitation, that little explosive force behind the milk that then brings that up. How does that feel? Yeah. So would the overfeeding be kind of that green area of like, 
normal slash doesn't need intervention type of, um, I guess, cause? Or would you still recommend that any baby that has spit up, we try and feed them just slightly less, maybe a quarter of an ounce or a half an ounce? Or is that what your recommendation would be? So everything has to come down to parents' decision. Mm. Right. So for some for some parents, the happy spit up happens so frequently that it's stressful in terms of the laundry that it sure. causes, you know, so it, we do have to take a one to one approach and, and parents need to say, how do I feel about this? Yeah. Do you know what? It's it's once a day. We're OK. Or no, this is 15 times a day. I'm not OK with it. If you do want to take action and, you know, baby is generally happy and it's just that maybe they're drinking a little bit too much then anything that your baby brings up, they're not getting any nutritional benefit from it because it's not inside their body. So reduce the feed by that much. You know, that's one really simple intervention. Um, winding is a way to get rid of air before it becomes a problem. And most people, we, we are, well, certainly in the UK and Ireland, we are led to believe that burping a baby is reserved for feeding time. But baby can inhale air all day, any mm. time of the day. We do it when we're talking. We do it, you know, babies do it when they're crying. They do it uh, depending on how good they are and what their latch is like with their pacifier. They can do it with that. So we can also burp them at any time of the day. So we can burp a baby before a feed to reduce the size, the, the, the volume of stuff in their stomach before they even drink milk. Mm. So for babies who, now my wheels are turning. So for babies who we feed them, we burp them and we do upright time and let's say it's a significant amount, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. And then we lay them down and an hour and a half to two hours later, they spit up all of this milk. Reflux, normal. We overfed them. What in the world is that? That is, there is always something else going on. And I can't say right now whether that's down to an allergy, whether that's down to air intake, whether that's down to um, the endocrine system and stress levels and things like that. What I can say is that we always take a step backwards. Like my belief is for every child, and it it doesn't matter what age of client I'm working with, be them you know two or three days old or five years old, the first place is information gathering. So we look at gathering every single symptom behavior and thing that can happen in your baby's life they're all the pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. and we turn the pieces over so we can see what they are and then we use a reference picture going okay so when we've got all the pieces together let's say we're doing a thousand piece jigsaw the medical profession tend to grab a few pieces out of the box and see if they can get things to stick they don't bother turning them over to see them all the right way up. And sometimes they'll be lucky and they get some pieces to go together. And most times it's not really going to work. I get parents to turn over all the pieces, colored side up, picture side up. And we then have the reference picture as well. So all we have to, to do is get three or four pieces. And depending on the type of piece, you might only need to put two together and you're like, ah. Oh, this is a pink bit with a bit of green. And when I compare that to the picture, I know exactly where it goes. I know what an orientation it goes in. So we can tell a lot when we've got all the pieces together. And we don't need to spend the whole time putting everything together in order to know, right, these are some of the next steps for each child. However, 
if we don't turn over the pieces, we could be mixing up something so badly. It could be as bad as doing an impossible puzzle, you know, with the ones with the thousands of minions on it. You're like, I don't know where to start. Um, but there always is a way through. And so for me, it's the process is always the same, but the process gives different answers depending on what's going on for each child. Yeah. Gosh, I love that. I talk a lot about puzzle pieces too. Um, it's just really important that you look at your baby as individual as their fingerprint because they are. Um, and this stands true too for siblings. So, you know, this may be your fourth baby. It, they're going to be different. They're going to have a ton of similarities to their siblings. I, I, I recognize that, but they are also going to have a lot of differences. Um, so just because this is your second or third or fourth baby, um, you know, don't don't discount something just because your first baby didn't have it or vice versa. Just because your first baby did struggle really badly with reflux doesn't mean that your second and third and fourth babies will. Um, unless, Anya, there's data behind that. I say that purely anecdotally that I've seen many families have first babies that have terrible reflux and subsequent babies not. Um, data around that? There's no, there's no data. And the thing is, reflux has over 30 different causes that I've identified okay so in my mind I don't call reflux a disease the medical profession have this GER and GERD the gastroesophageal reflux which is apparently normal and GERD when they add the word disease on the end and the only difference according to medical literature is when is the disease form causes marked distress hmm. now that's not a disease in the true sense of the word. If you take a true disease like cancer, cancer has blood markers. In every single case of cancer, no matter where in the body it occurs, there is a shift of the, the cells from being aerobic to anaerobic. That's what causes tumors every single time, no matter where the cancer occurs. So that's a disease. It is the same pattern in every person, in every part of their body, wherever it occurs. That's what cancer is. Like COVID, there was a test for it. You either had it or you didn't. They are diseases in the true sense of the word. Reflux is a symptom. Okay, reflux is caused by something else always. And if we take, like there's a, a few pediatricians now in the UK that I've been in touch with over the last number of years, have started, they're like, actually, it is more of a symptom. And when we start to look at it as a symptom to see what else is going on, then we get to identify that true underlying cause. So, you know, for example, it could be things that happen in pregnancy. Stress levels in pregnancy can cause reflux in baby. Hmm. Um, moms or dads, like the, the microbiome and the environment kids are in can contribute to reflux. The stress levels in the house can contribute to reflux. Tongue tie, oral aversions, buccal ties, cheek ties, any oral dysfunction can contribute to reflux. Um, intervention during birth. So Vontus, forceps, even a, a straightforward, um, oh, I can't even remember the word now. Induction, that's it. Um, <laughs> assistance from midwives. Uh, if baby hasn't turned and if baby's breached for a period uh, before birth, if an ECV, you know, that external cephalic, what do they call it, movement? where, Version, where people, yeah. Yeah, to try and turn baby, that can cause reflux. Multiples, just simply babies being squashed in utero, perhaps even having fight and beating each other up in utero can contribute and cause reflux. And what I want parents to know is that because we can identify what causes reflux, 
we can address it. We can resolve it. We can rebalance the body or rebalance the environment or rebalance the food or whatever it can be. I forgot to say allergies and intolerances as well. All of these things can contribute to reflux. And so I don't believe in the standard approach of, well, let's wait it out or let's just try a different milk and let's try another milk and let's try another milk or let's just switch bottles or let's have a tongue tire vision because it's not guaranteed to work. And lots of this is like nailing jelly to a wall. It very often doesn't work. And I meet so many parents who have done all the things and they still got really unhappy babies mm. and no explanation, no understanding and no learning from all the things they've tried apart from, well, it didn't work. You know, it could be that they've done all the right things, but in the wrong order or for mm. not long enough in order to still end up in the same place that they were. So for me, getting a baby reflux free is actually a journey. And it's just like setting the sat nav in your car. Yeah, you get into your car, you set the sat nav. The first thing our sat navs do, which, you know, 15 years ago, I used to have to drive half a mile in order for my sat nav to find its GPS location and go, oh, I'm here. This is where I'm at. Capturing all of your baby's symptoms is that data gathering. This is where we're at. This is our starting point. And it's the most important part of the journey. Because you then set the sat-nav. Now, I assume with everybody I work with, reflux-free is our destination. And so once we know the starting point, we can plan our route. You know, where are you at the minute, In Boston. Okay, so you're in Boston. I'm in London. If we say, let's meet in New York, and I say, do you know what? If you just head west and I'll meet you in New York, you will go all the way around the globe and you'll never get to New York. But I'll get to New York and I'll be sat there waiting for you going, but I gave her the same directions. I gave her the, your directions are not the same as mine because the starting point is different. You know, from, from my American geography, you need to go south or southwest a little bit to get to yeah. New York. Yeah? yeah, so it's a very different um, proposal for somebody coming from Sydney to New York. You know, they can go west. Again, they'll never get to New York just by going west. So it's really important that we get the directions we have our starting point we have our destination we plan the route and then we actually follow the route Mm. you know it's not good enough to know that in order to get to the shop down the road there's two right turns a left turn and a straight through the 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 roundabout or straight over the crossroads because if you do them in a different order you'll end up in a different place Mm. especially if you're in england and we got windy roads unlike in other states you've got lots of straight lines we don't have that over here so whether you take the first right or the second right is important. Is so, you know, how long you stay on that road, how long do you need to do oral play and oral support after a tongue tie revision, for example? Some people do it for three days. Some people do it for three months. You know, and there is, a, there is the right thing to do, which could be different for every child. And mm. that's, what makes, that's what makes solving the puzzle difficult is because... People are grasping at straws and reading blogs going, try these 573 things for reflux. And so parents are overwhelmed. I I was there myself. Mm. I had no idea. I was holding my child upright. I was doing the most dangerous of sleep habits, which I won't describe because it's highly dangerous. But as parents, we do what we need to do in the absence of explanations, answers and support. 
Man, that's tough. Just like let that sit in that if people had the support, how many families could run so much smoother? You know, babies would be more comfortable. Parents would be well rested. We could have parents that are happy and joyous to wake up. But sometimes with reflux, it's so hard. I know there are so many of you out there listening being like, yeah, I wake up almost with a little bit of dread, right? And then you immediately feel guilty for like, oh my God, I should want to spend time with my baby. But it's so hard sometimes with reflux. Like it is really, really hard. Okay, so you kind of confirmed with us that silent reflux is a thing. You confirmed with us that burping your baby does in fact help. What about upright time? So sometimes, you know, we hear of parents staying, like I say, up for two hours after a feed with them during the night. And now you just made your feed a three-hour thing. You know, is does upright time help? If so, how long? Is there a certain way that we should be doing upright time in order to ensure its success? What do we need to know about that? Yeah, so my view is looking for what the human body should be anatomically able to do. That is my goal of normal, okay? Just because things are common, Mm. I don't believe that they're normal. I'm looking for how should we, the balanced, healthy human body operate? And that for me is normal. We are all designed to be able to lie down and to drink lying down. And if we're not, if we're not able to keep food in our stomach when we're lying down, we have to ask why. What else is going on? What's causing this? So my goal for all parents is that you can you could even do, you know, if you're breastfeeding, you could do sideline, baby just rolls over, goes back to sleep. We shouldn't need this upright time. I know for a lot of parents, they will say it's the godsend, it stops baby. Um spilling but if baby's spilling they're they're overfed they've got more in their stomach than they really should have if you are doing upright time and it's helping then great however there's always something else going on under the surface Hmm. so my goal is always to use the process to understand how do we unpick this so that we don't need to hold baby upright that they can be upright for you know a minute or two a bit of burping to get any air and wind out and then they lie down and they're they're asleep for a good three four five hours once they're you know learning to stitch those sleep cycles together nice okay um is there anything else that we should know about the tongue ties lip tie buckle ties you had mentioned them briefly Mm. but i know a lot of people bring um those things to our team um we have separate episodes about those ties and the problems that they can create with breastfeeding. So if you're struggling out there with um, a tie of some sort, any sort of oral restriction, go back a few episodes because you will find um, the episode that we have about tongue ties and stuff. But um, anything that we need to know about reflux that would be important or maybe even questions that we should ask our pediatrician or in the US, you guys, we we actually should be seeking out probably... um, some sort of phrenectomy specialist or a pediatric dentist. A lot of pediatricians don't know about this kind of stuff. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what I will say is across the world, the level of understanding and knowledge about how the tongue impacts our overall health and how important it is, is it seems to have been something the medical community in general have dropped. But as, a, as an explanation, it, we're using our tongues now 
-hmm. mean, if you try and tether yours to the bottom floor of the mouth and try and speak, it's not going to work. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't work. We use our tongues to eat. They're so important for manipulating and controlling food. They're vitally important for a controlled and safe swallow. If your child has been diagnosed with dysphagia or difficulty swallowing or an unsafe swallow, get the tongue tie looked at. I have met children who have been tube fed because of an unsafe swallow and their speech and language therapist completely missed the oral tie that was blatantly obvious. So we must always seek out proper understanding on tongue tie. And there's not a lot of people who are really good at it. But if you're looking for a profession of people who really know, it's myofunctional therapists. Like that's my go-to all the time. Um, you want to make sure your tongue tie practitioner understands that tongue tie is important for all babies, not just those who are breastfed. Equally implies to babies who are bottle fed. Yeah. It's important for speaking. It's important for the developing our oral function, our teeth. It's important for breathing. My goodness, it's so important. Now, when it comes to reflux, it's really important we separate tongue tie from reflux. For some babies, you will get babies who have a tongue tie and a reflux, and the tongue tie is the direct cause of reflux. So addressing it properly, and I'll come back to that, addressing it properly can address and cure the underlying re the, the reflux. We'll also get babies who have tongue ties and reflux, and the tongue tie has nothing to do with their reflux because they might have, let's say, a cow's milk protein allergy going on as well. You will get babies with a cow's milk protein allergy or some other food intolerance or allergy and a tongue tie, and both are causing the reflux external symptoms. So we need to know what to deal with and how to unpick the different symptoms and the nuances between things to say which is more important and, and you know which ones are going to give the change to the family first. What's most important to me after I've been learning about tongue ties for about 10 years now and I keep keep learning because there's so much more coming up is to first of all, understand the tongue is 16 muscles, okay? It's eight pairs of muscles. It is the most complex group of muscles over which we have conscious control, yeah? Our heart is super complex, but we don't, we don't think about that. We don't have to you know, consciously make that work, thankfully. But with the tongue, we can get behaviors and functional things that look like tongue tie, but are actually tension within the muscle itself. So oral play and exercises with baby in their mouth, absolutely vital before and after tongue tie revision. And I have worked with children where we, it looked like a tongue tie, but we did a week of oral play first and the tongue tie disappeared because it wasn't a tongue tie, it was just muscular tension. And I've, I've seen babies where they've just gone straight for the tongue tie revision, no change whatsoever. Mm. And that's because it's muscular tension. And so we're addressing the wrong thing. So it's not like things are not as simple as they look on the surface. We must always just triple check and go, yeah, we're happy with this, which is why now any of my clients, like I have an oral play course that Anybody who comes into the reflux-free baby class, you do this because you know the way tummy time is a thing all babies have to do now. 
and it used to be you know when I was when I was a baby there wasn't such thing as tummy time because there weren't so many containers hmm. I was just I was my 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 world was the floor the floor is where we were yeah I had a playpen but I was yeah. free to move about that and explore that and in that I was getting my tummy time because I was hmm. physically moving my head as opposed to so many babies now are left in rockers so that they can see the world and they're supported they don't have to support their head themselves and so tummy time is now the conscious effort to say make sure we're not removing development opportunities for babies you know it's not saying all containers are bad it's just saying let's make sure we're we're supporting babies at the right uh functional movement and, and development support for me oral play is a new tummy time because so do you go to the gym Hayley? yeah yeah so you exercise from here down yeah, I feel like my brain gets a lot of exercise every single day. Like this conversation is kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah. Um, and how yes, much I do. Do you, do you do facial exercises? Um, exercises, no, but I do like the gua sha stone and dry brushing. I guess mm. that's more for the, the skin rather than the muscles. Yeah. yeah. So exercises are chewing. Chewing mm. is our biggest exercise. And certainly in Western culture, we have become accustomed to eating soft food mm. lots of people would eat raw food and go crunchy and that's great and lots of people chew gum like chewing sugar-free gum is incredible for building up our cheek muscles okay. it's incredible but we we've, we've got so many muscles in our face and we don't exercise them hmm. and this is one reason that like you know we end up with the with the saggy jowl is because we're literally we're not toning and exercising the skin huh like if we hold our tongue in the correct position, which is glued to the roof of the mouth, we instantly get rid of the gel. Yeah. Okay. Like, so, you know, I'm about to say the most like millennial thing ever, but I saw that on TikTok and I did see the viral videos of people like sucking their tongue up and it worked. Um, yeah. So this our natural resting position of our tongue should be on the roof of our mouth. Yep. And this is... Again, this is something, a, a trick, a tip for all parents to start doing. First of all, remember, it is our basic anatomical norm to breathe through our nose, okay? Because our nose has thousands of filters. It cleans the air. Mm. Like, it's so important. And when we breathe through our mouth, we don't filter the air whatsoever. So what you can do is when your baby's asleep, gently pull their lip down and see where their tongue is. Now, are you happy for me to show where it should be and what yeah. parents should see? So yeah, it should yeah. look like this. Okay, so anybody listening on the audios, come and watch the video for that bit. You'll see where your baby's tongue should be. Now, that, when it's in the roof of the mouth, it creates this gentle pressure that pulls the arch down, which makes the nasal cavity bigger. So it actually improves our oxygen intake. We produce nitrous, nitrous oxide, which is like our supercharger, when we breathe through our nose, but not through our mouth. Hmm. It also develops a child's dental arch so that their teeth, funnily enough, become straight and they create space in their mouth for their adult teeth. So it's not just for infancy. It's like a, a lifetime of things. Breathing through our mouth is a skill babies cannot learn before the age of four months. Like, I don't know if your kids ever had a cold, but I remember my daughter first having a cold and she was like, 
trying to and just like breathe right. through your mouth it's open <laughs> and, and you're like why can't you breathe through your mouth they don't it's a skill they have to consciously learn to open the throat at the back and breathe through the mouth hmm. and it's vital it's absolutely vital for when we do have a cold it's our backup system but after your child has a cold make sure they close their mouth again breathing through their nose they get better quality sleep they get like the the science and I will grab some of the links and connect the, the publications for this for you. We are seeing children, older children with ADHD-like behaviors simply from poor sleep caused by mouth breathing. Wow. Okay. Because when we breathe through our nose, or no, when we breathe through our mouth, we get 18% less oxygen to our brain mm. than we breathe through our nose. Because this, funnily enough, goes up and like literally we're putting oxygen straight into the brain. It goes across the blood brain barrier and everything. So it like the amount of reasons why tongue position, proper tongue function, oral play is so important. It just it goes beyond. Um, like it goes beyond just basic feeding, which is so often where the focus is. And there's so many. I have heard even still so many parents come to me going, I was told to stop breastfeeding because my baby had a tongue tie. I was like, no, let's address the tongue tie. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Gosh, this is just so, I think, eye-opening. I'm sure there's so many listeners out there who are like, what? So many things make sense now. Okay. So let's shift a little bit to remedies. Are there Mm -hmm. any like... I'm not going to say surefire remedies because remember, it's all like a fingerprint. So we're, we're finding your baby's individual puzzle piece. But where should we start in terms of remedy? And then what are the options that are maybe evidence-based that are pharma- pharmacological options, the medical options that we have? Okay. So the surefire solution for every child's reflux is to find and address the underlying cause. <laughs> right. <laughs> every single time. And for some babies, they may not be able to get all the way to reflux free. For example, let's take a severe case where a child has a cleft lip palate. Yeah. So they actually have a hole and a gap in the roof of their mouth. So their tongue cannot, they cannot reduce the air. They cannot prevent themselves from swallowing air. However, for these children, we can create the the set of strategies and feeding behaviors and feeding support that minimize the air and therefore reduce the impact of reflux until they get around and have their, you know, the, the, um, the surgery they need to have. I do believe that for every child, there is an answer. And I will mention, because it is so important, that if your child suddenly starts having reflux you know especially if they're already on solids and um they've been established on solids for a while and they suddenly start throwing up like proper regurgitating all the time or at the same time every day please do not be fobbed off with it's just reflux okay it might be just reflux however it will still have an underlying cause that we can find be it tongue tie or you know, where a child isn't maybe chewing their food correctly or they're taking on too much air while they're drinking or they're using, like I see kids using um, cups with straws. And every time 
they use a straw, well, the first part of that is air. So we mm. actually get children drinking lots of air when they start drinking fluids. And that could be enough to start reflux. So I don't want to scare parents. However, it is really important because I have seen too many cases where it has ended up being too late for some children because sudden onset vomiting is a sign of a brain tumor. And wow. so, and I have, I have too many stories of it being too late. So get the answers. Mm. Like when we can tell a story that logically adds up and go, well, this is baby's behavior here. And then this is happening and then that's happening. And so this is happening. It's like, okay, that all makes sense. So when you address the underlying cause, there's a chain reaction and it all goes away. If a child really had a brain tumor, taking any of those actions would not change it. And so, you know, for me, six to eight weeks is enough for any child to go through this process diligently and we're able to piece the story together and tell the story, you know, that all makes sense. Or we're still scratching our heads and going, right, now is the time to really ask the next level of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has to be done first. And this is where the medical community, when they step up, are brilliant. However, it's been the medical community who have missed these children for two to three years, and then it's too late. So I also see a lot of children getting the pH probe, the barium swallow tests, the x-rays and all of that. And none of these tell us, for most children, anything other than they've got reflux. Hmm. We can tell that a child's got reflux. They are telling us with all of their patterns as well. So I don't believe in those invasive tests, except in extreme cases where, for example, a child might have had like a, a tracheal atresia so their trachea ended in a actually wasn't connected to their stomach and they've had surgery and then those tests tell whether their atomical function is working correctly or they need whether that surgery was a success yes exactly but for a child who simply has reflux you know and I have so many parents come to me going we've done all the tests there's nothing there we've checked out there's nothing sinister going on it's like great but your pediatrician completely missed the tongue tie. Mm. Like we, I, we always have to come back. This is my, my engineering degree is we, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Like literally, we should be able to piece the story together and make a logical story. And if we cannot make a logical story, then we need to go back and go, right. What else could be going on? Yeah. But we have to start with the simple things. And it takes no more than about an hour to two hours to get enough of a sense going, oh, yeah, that's the story. I can see it here. When it comes to the pharmacological interventions, we have. So the only answer the medics really have is watch and wait Mm -hmm. because it's normal and baby will grow out of it. Or medication. Mm-hmm. And they have options of medication between famotidine, which is the H2RA, the histamine to receptor antagonist, which is a replacement for ranitidine, which got called off the shelves. And I will say, because you're a global podcast, ranitidine is still on the shelves in South Africa. It's still on the mm. shelves in a few countries. And the reason it was called off the shelves in most countries is because of a carcinogenic contamination, which was never resolved. So that started in November 2019 and was off the shelves in most major countries um, in the Western world by, I think, April 2020. It's still in places. So for that reason, you know, it's up to parents to decide whether they want to use it or not. Promotidine is interesting because it's allowed from birth in the US and in the UK, it's not allowed until 
the age of 12 years. Wow. Yeah. With a clear statement on the, I literally looked this up for an Instagram story last week, a statement on the medical literature that says we've got no proven use of this in, in the pediatric population at all. We're not say it's not safe for use in the pediatric population. If you look up the electronic medicines compendium for the UK. So, you know, we have massive degrees of variation mm. in countries around the world. And then the other one is the PPI, the proton pump inhibitor medications. And these are ones that end in prazole. So the active ingredient, you're going omeprazole, isomeprazole, uh, pantoprazole, lanzoprazole, rabaprazole, any of those, they all work the same way. And the only one which is has got some history on the, and it's licensed for use under the age of three months, is liquid form, the liquid suspension of isomeprazole. Hmm. that's the only one everything else if you look at the literature and what the uh, pharmaceutical companies themselves say is don't use in babies under 12 months so most of these medications so famosity in the uk in the us is licensed for use from birth and all the ppis other than one particular very variant are all now being prescribed off off, essentially off books. I can't remember what they off label. Off label. What we it. say, yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm a little. And shook. then we have Gavascon. Yeah, sorry, I skipped over Gavascon, which is very often the first step, um, but forms a raft and so makes it more difficult for baby to vomit, and often causes more digestive discomfort as a mm. result. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow, I'm a little shook. I'm also a little not. This feels very it happens a lot where other countries yeah. uh have different standards and um you know things that they allow and don't allow in particularly medicine and cosmetics and food and all sorts yeah. of things. And yeah. it's what I will say it's re like there is I don't believe medications should be the first port of call. Yeah. And I do believe they have a place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's really about being comfortable with what we're trying to achieve from the medication and why and I have like I have an interactive medications guide that parents get when they join my reflux clinic membership nice. we go through all the medications what each of them does how they work what are their side effects what are the contraindications how should they how should they be used and if you have them for your baby you know what should you expect in terms of review what should you expect in terms of a weaning plan and all these sort of things What's really important is that if a baby is in pain and suffering with acid burn in their esophagus, these medications, so that the PPI medications and the H2RA, so that's the prazoles and the famotidine, they reduce the acidity of stomach acid so that it doesn't physically burn and damage the esophagus. Okay, so that is when they are beneficial. However, we shouldn't use them um, without a plan. Exactly. They yeah. are not, they, even in the adult population, all the literature is no more than six to eight weeks, no more than three times a year. Yes. And I meet kids been on these for two years with no review. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're not, you know, the medical population are not telling parents the nutritional impact of these. They're not telling parents about the long-term potential 
issues with you know community acquired pneumonia and all the other clostridium difficile infections and so many other things that could be related so parents aren't getting the ability to weigh up their decisions on balance and i think that's really important for me like i am very much about every single parent should have the information to make informed decisions mm-hmm. because that's all we like as humans all we can ever do is make decisions based on the information we have available at the time yeah yeah and you know for anybody who made a decision prior to hearing this and you got new information today and you're like hmm don't ever feel guilty because I know that as a parent every single one of us has always done what we thought was the best thing in that moment with the information we had at the time and with the resources you know and the resources is our level of tiredness our ability to think whether we've eaten or not all these things make like are really important and so if you get new information allow yourself to change your mind Mm -hmm. allow yourself to go okay that serves us until now or I did that decision and this is where we're at where do we go from here you know and so it becomes a journey rather than looking back and going oh I wish I did that and I wish don't ever wish that you did something different but give yourself the choice to go actually I want to read up a little bit more about this and make more of an informed decision and if you're happy with where you're at that's brilliant like that's where we should always be we will always feel more comfortable with ourselves when we go I'm happy like I trust that doctor I'm going to do what they say and that's fine and there's other people who go nah I just didn't like the way that person spoke to me so I'm going to dig a little bit more whatever your reason is it's good enough yeah I agree with that I think you should really listen to your intuition and Um, that's not just about your baby symptoms, but the feeling that you get from your providers and the options that they present to you, um, and the sources that they give you or, um, you know, digging into your own research. Okay. So I do have a question about the pH of the belly. You were talking about it changes it from, you know, acidic to a little bit more neutral or basic. So that must throw off the pH. And then previously you had also talked about the gut health. So I'm wondering if there is a reason or maybe there's data behind kids with reflux being on a probiotic to help rebuild that gut health or help improve that pH of the belly. Is that change in pH even a problem? The change in pH is a massive problem because Mm. when this is what causes a lot of the issues. So we primarily see our stomach as part of the digestive system. It's actually also a really important part of our immune system. Mm. The acid in our stomach is there to kill some of the bacteria we eat with food. So if it's not acidic, we're now eating bacteria and they go into our small intestine. And this is where there and there is there's lots of research around the use long term use of PPI medication and H2RI medication and um, heightened increase or increased risk of small intestine bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Um, which is SIBO takes far longer to resolve than it does to create. Mm-hmm. However, it does take time to create. So if your child is on a medicate, one of these um, medications and has been on them for a while, I will say I've not yet met a child under the age of 18 months who has had SIBO because, okay. and the, the kids who are, who've been 18 months who did have SIBO, they were literally on the medication from five to six weeks of age. 
Yeah, all the way the through eighteen months, pretty much. Yeah. So, uh, and so, probiotics won't actually prevent SIBO because, you're, yeah, I mean, probiotics can be amazing, and we also have to be careful especially if we're using them with PPI medications because PPI medications are and the H2RAs. So the gastric acid suppression medication, they also elevate the histamine levels in children because histamine is the neurotransmitter that tells our body to produce stomach acid. And if the stomach acid is being blocked in any way, the stomach goes, more histamine, make more stomach acid. It's trying to communicate that all the time. So we elevate the levels of histamine, histamine circulating in our blood. Now, histamine is completely normal. It helps our body do so many things. However, we do have a threshold level of it. Okay, mm. we have the we have a DAO, diamine oxidase, is the enzyme that breaks down histamine. So, do you know the big glass jars with a tap on the bottom? Yeah, yeah. So, if you leave the tap open, right, the tap open at the bottom is like. Is, the, is our diamine oxidase, right? That's our ability to break down histamine. And so we can leave the tap open and pour water into the jug and it won't ever fill up because it's flowing at the bottom until we do something that artificially increases the flow of histamine into the body. So now we've got, imagine we've got four jugs pouring water yeah. into this jar. We still have this maximum rate. The tap doesn't open any further. We only produce a certain amount of the DAO enzyme. And so we can actually fill that jug. And as soon as it overflows, we now get these allergic symptoms. That's what histamine sensitivity is. It's when the histamine in our bodies breaks its threshold level. And so it can flare for, for babies who are on these gastric acid suppression medication, their histamine levels get elevated really quite quickly. And so if they have, you know, there are so many other things that can contribute to histamine levels, like inflammation and tiredness and so many things. But we can get children who appear to be allergic to everything hmm. and we can't figure it out. And they might have Sunday dinner and they were fine. And then by the time Monday comes and they eat the very same meal, it's actually leftovers, but they react to the leftovers. Hmm. You know, these are clues that it's a histamine thing going on and the reason I come to this at this point of the conversation is because probiotics the bacteria in our gut produce histamine so sometimes we get babies and they start on a probiotic and it's all with the good intention of supporting their gut health if they're near a threshold level on their histamine issues because of ongoing PPI medication or ongoing H2RA medication then it could be a trigger and it looks like they're allergic to something when actually they're not it's a histamine equation so again this is where understanding and having all the pieces of the puzzle first gives us such a deeper insight as to what's going on and so i really believe in solving reflux first and for babies who are on medication, solving the reflux, then they, if they're not regurgitating, they don't need their esophagus being protected anymore. Mm. So we have the medication and then we get to see what their body really does. So if someone felt like their baby was having those symptoms, what kind of specialist would they seek out? Are they going to an allergist? Are they going to an endocrinologist? Who should they take their child to? 
they can pretty much stay away from the Western system, to be honest, find a functional doctor, yeah. functional medicine. Um, you know, for children and toddlers, I've got a basic set in my weaning course, which combines a whole lot of stuff about the development digestive system. And we need to look at, like, we need to find people who really understand it all. Mm. And I've yet to find somebody who's put it all together, including with the medications. So I have a basic course for toddlers on this. And then we can get so far because what, what's really important is we address the reflux. Like mm. if your functional doctor isn't looking at reflux as an underlying cause and doesn't understand tongue tie and things like that, we need to do those first, get baby off medication and then um for SIBO definitely it's functional medicine functional practitioner who really understands the different varieties of bacteria and can find really specific bacteria and I say you have a lot more of support in this in the states than we do in the UK um I've got a good friend who's become a good friend from being one of these I can't believe that happened clients mm. um you know the two of us learned so much from her daughter and her daughter is probably six now and I think she can eat 20 foods wow like and 20 foods is not a lot you want your kid to be eating 20 foods by the time they're six months this child literally had a cascade of errors from the medical profession from the beginning um so many mistakes and so much learning for her mom and I like her mom trained with me and now does this as well and when she was going through supporting resolving her her child's SIBO, she was importing the the she was importing the probiotics and the right support from the US wow. because we we just don't have that level of knowledge in the UK. You know, functional medicine in the US is superior, I think, than anywhere else in the world. So while we have wow. this really strong medical Western system. We also have a, you you guys have a really, really good functional medicine system as well. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. Um, I love functional medicine. Our team is, we're really big supporters of um, functional medicine and a number of us see functional medicine doctors um, kind yeah. of as our primary care physicians. Um, okay, I think that we've covered so, so much, but I do have one final question for the people who um, are like, okay, great. All of this or a lot of this, most of this applies to me. I have a plan of going forward, uh, but in the meantime, I'm stuck with these really, really hard times where my baby is just inconsolable. And I know it's going to take time to get these appointments done, do you have tips for parents and how do they cope with these really hard um, reflux times? This is the time that if your doctor has diagnosed your baby with colic, then this is what you're going to call like your colicky time, right? Or that um, it's different than the witching hour, but those really hard kind of reflux times. Yeah. So th- there's a few things. First of all, please follow me on whatever social media platform you're on. You know, there's tips there. I post daily, Monday to Friday. Grab me on the stories. There's a Q&A box most Mondays. So come and follow, get information. If you can, get the book. The Baby Reflux Lady Survival Guide, if you have time to read, is fantastic. Um, I've got online courses and I do one-to-one support as well. So we've always got ways to help. However, in the meantime, the first thing, I would say is to breathe. Okay. It is the most stressful time. 
it's incredibly worrying. And I know this because my own journey involved three years of a relationship of postnatal depression. You know, it was tough. It was low. And actually, conversing, you said, you know, sometimes the mornings we were dreading things. I dreaded the night because I felt so lonely at night. I was like, my husband's gone to sleep and he needed to sleep because he needed to go to work. And I was scared that he was driving the next day. Oh, my goodness. But simply breathing. Okay, our breath can be the first point of grounding and it doesn't change what's happening in the world, but it does change how we can cope with it. The first most important thing is to focus on your exhale being longer than your inhale. Mm. That will, that moves us from our, our stress state into our calm state. And so we gain the ability to think and to cope and to tell ourselves we are absolutely amazing parents and our babies chose us for a reason. You know, so remember that always. You said it already, and I completely agree. Every parent is the world's leading expert in their baby, 100%. If you feel that your baby is more unsettled than they should be, you're right. Yeah, what you live in your life is reality you know don't have anybody gaslight you and say well that can't really be happening you can go well you might think that and remember you are in your life nobody else is ask for help is another one so hard (laughs) it is it's really hard and it's it's also really i mean i found it really hard because my mom would tell me oh well i did this for you And this is how I parented. And you turned out all right. And it's not that I was trying to in any way shame my mother about how she parented me. It's just that right now. We have encyclopedias in our hands. We have access to so much more information than our parents ever had. Mm -hmm. So remember that. Our your parents, if they're offering, oh, I read this blog and I read that blog. It like it used to frustrate me so much going, don't you think I've tried all of these things? And if people want to help, kind of go, actually, ask your mom, your mother-in-law, your father, whoever is available to help. Do you know what? Can you hold them? You seem to be able to birth them. Let that be somebody else's superpower. Yeah. You know, so allow that help to come in and ask them to tailor it. Kind of go, do you know what? I heard about this chick on a podcast. Would you ever listen to the podcast? Look her up on Google, see what you find out. You know, get other people involved in the research as well. We don't have to do the journey alone unless you allow yourself to be alone. And I found it, I didn't know who to ask for help. And I didn't know, well, I didn't, I didn't exist, Hmm. you know. So if you have found this podcast, just follow my Instagram, go there first port of call and you will realize you're not on your own yeah you know and if you ask your friends 50 percent of babies in the uk and the us have reflux wow so you're most definitely not alone but we often suffer in silence telling ourselves that oh their child is fine at the minute so they don't have these problems we never know what's going on behind somebody else's closed doors so be open with your with your friends conversations going do you know what 
I'm having a really tough time and I don't know if this is normal or not. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you're never alone. Postpartum is such a journey. It's got its highs and its lows and it has wonderful moments, but it also has a really hard moments. And just remind yourself that those are fleeting, right? They are temporary and there is an other side to this. Um, it just takes sometimes a lot of work and that's okay. Um, you can, you can totally do that. So Anya, you've given us a lot of places that we can find you and follow you. Is there any other place that people can connect with you if they'd like to work with you? So Instagram is great. And then my website, which is www.thebabyreflexlady.co.uk. Um, sort of, they're the two main places. There's also Facebook and TikTok and all the other regular places, but they all point to the website. Um, and yeah, I think we've got a special code for your listeners, Hehe. We do. And I will link that in um, the show notes for everybody to uh, take advantage for that. Brilliant, brilliant. Because what I will say is that there is there is an answer. There's always yeah. an answer. And sometimes, you know, this is not about parents not knowing the answer. Because if I ask somebody to translate a book into Hebrew, unless you actually spoke Hebrew, you'd probably feel quite comfortable going, I don't know how to do that. And that's okay because we can all learn. Understanding reflux is the very same thing. You can't be expected to know this stuff unless you've learned it. And, you know, think of me as your reflux dictionary. I help you decipher what's going on and, and read everything for your baby. So you can do it yourself. To find those perfect puzzle pieces. Yeah. This was such a fantastic conversation, uh, listeners. If you want to get in touch with Anya, you know how to do that. And we will link all of her links in the bottom. Otherwise, you can check out this podcast on YouTube and follow us over on Instagram at Tranquility by Hehe and The Birth Lounge. Until next time. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.